Chapter thirty five of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Praed. Chapter thirty five. In Peril. Barrington was in the gardens by ten. The night was clear and moonlit, a trifle chill, as evenings in June are apt to be. He lit a cigar and strolled up and down beneath the bunya trees, cursing below his breath Honoria's laggard steps, and watching the lights in the premier's house which flickered in several windows, and at last became stationary only in those of Mr. Longleat's study. He knew then that all but the master himself had retired. Surely she was free now. Would she never come? He threw away the butt-end of his cigar as the clock in the parliamentary building struck the half-hour after eleven. Then he saw Honoria, her tall figure enveloped in a long dark cloak which did not conceal the graceful sweep of her shoulders, emerge cautiously and in apparent uncertainty from one of the Venetian windows and steal round by the shrubbery, passing at length through the wicked gate into the public grounds. He saw in the first glimpse of her face that she had undergone some agitating experience. It was very pale, and her dark eyes looked bright and feverish while her lips seemed to tremble with sensibility. She uttered a deep sigh. The night was very still. Above their heads the bamboos rustled ever so slightly. They might have heard a leaf fall. "'I thought that you were never coming,' whispered Barrington. "'Sweetest, what detained you? Did you know that I was here, waiting and counting the minutes till you appeared?' "'Yes, I knew that you were here.' There was a gentleman dining with us, and I could not get away sooner. Listen, she went on, in a hurried, discomposed manner. I do not feel like myself tonight. I have something to tell you. No, do not speak. Let me have my say first. I think that we had better part, for a time at least, if not for always. I am so miserable. I feel so ill, so restless. It has come over me strongly that I am wrong to be with you here that you make me wicked. I want to go back to my old life. I am under a spell. If we were parted, I could decide calmly whether I love you or not. I cannot do so now. I have had a heavy dread upon me for days. As I was stepping out, a voice seemed to whisper to me, Stay. All through dinner I seemed in a dream. I felt that something terrible was going to happen. Do you believe in spirits? Ever since Angela's death, I have fancied that she was in the air close to me, like a chill current freezing my blood when I thought of you. And then I have imagined and have heard other things. Hardress, she exclaimed sharply, drawing herself away from him. Did you, did you make Angela love you too? Barrington shrank as Honoria spoke. Since he heard that Angela was dead, he had tried deliberately to thrust the remembrance of her from his mind. After a moment's pause, he replied, "'My dearest, what has put that notion into your head?' "'An anonymous letter was sent me yesterday. I threw it in the fire, but its words rankled in my mind. At first I thought that I would not tell you, and then—you know that I must trust you. Is it true?' "'Honoria,' said Barrington in a constrained tone, "'even if I had never known you—' I could not have connected the idea of love as between man and woman with that pure, poetic child. The feeling I had for Angela, 
and it was deep in its way, was that tender affection which one so innocent and imaginative might well inspire. She was like a forest flower which blooms and fades, and which one could not pass without a delicate pleasure in its beauty and perfume. I have mourned her. Do not sully her memory by such thoughts as these. Forgive me, murmured Honoria. I have been sorry, too, she added. I have reproached myself because I did not understand her. It is thinking of her, of her father's grief. Aunt Penn says that he is as a man gone mad. He will not speak, but sits all day long by her grave, which has turned my heart towards my father, away from you. Forgive me if I wronged you. I wished to think evil of you. I wanted to have a reason for hating you. What has your father been saying to you? asked Barrington. Why have you changed? He has said nothing, answered Honoria. For weeks we have been estranged. We have never mentioned your name. But tonight there was something odd and sad in his manner. He kept eyeing me with a kind of wistful tenderness, and my heart yearned to him. It was as though our souls were trying to speak and could not. Only when he bade me good night he said, Honey, don't let anything come between us and I could have fallen upon his neck and told him that I was bad and that I hated myself and begged him to keep me beside him and not let me go out tonight. And then I would have implored him to take me away to some strange place where we might forget and learn to love each other. I felt that I had seemed proud and indifferent. Men are not like women. I ought not to have judged him. Perhaps, if I had not been cold, he would not have gone away to that other woman. But I could not speak, and it was too late. Oh, Hardress, release me. Give me time. Hardress, let me go. Don't make me come out any more like this. I cannot. I cannot. It was the new Honoria who gasped out the broken sentences, clinging to him with hot, nervous fingers, that when they touched his neck thrilled him with passionate excitement. As she made her wild appeal, she gazed at him with wide-open eyes, half terrified, half imploring, and wound her head back as though she were struggling against the spell which bound her. "'Why do you fight so hard against what is your fate?' he said, in a tone at once imploring and caressing. "'You came out tonight because you love me. Is love so terrible a crime? Is it not a joy rather than a torment? Your scruples, dearest one, are natural to a daughter.' but believe me they are unreasonable, and knowing your heart as I do, how could I yield to them? You will misunderstand me, exclaimed Honoria. It is not only for my father's sake that I wish to be free, but because I distrust my own feelings. I want to go away, to Sydney, Tasmania, anywhere so that you do not follow me, and so that I can think calmly. This thought was in my mind tonight and many others, and when my father looked at me so, I had almost determined to tell him everything, to implore him to take me away. And then a clerk from the treasury came to see him, and they both went into his study. I waited and waited, and all the time I knew that you were outside, and my heart was beating, and I felt sick and faint. I wanted to stay indoors, and yet something stronger than myself seemed to draw me to you, and I grew frightened. At last I could not bear it. I put on my cloak and said to myself that I would tell you everything and implore you to release me. 
I will marry you by and by, perhaps, but not now, not for a long time. And I think that I am going mad. I do not sleep at night, and everywhere I see your eyes, like those of a fiend, haunting me. I do not know whether I love or hate or dread you most. Oh, don't look at me like that. Don't, don't. You frighten me. Let me go. He unloosed his arms and stood silently facing her. There was an evil expression in his eyes from which, without knowing the cause, she instinctively shrank. I tell you that I am afraid of you, she said. I want to go back. There is something strange about you tonight. Oh, I wish that I had stayed at home. Honoria, said Barrington gravely, do you wish to take back your promise? Do you mean to throw me over? No, no. I only ask you to be generous. You have made me your slave. I do not know how, but I am afraid of you. Give me back my liberty. If I love you, let me love of my free will. Go away from me. At least go back to Daraaba. You can have little faith in my love, said Barrington, if you think that I can give you up so calmly. You have led me too far, and now I cannot let you draw back. I will have you for my own, not in an indefinite future, but now. I am going away indeed, but not to Daraaba. I shall never go back to Daraaba again. I have had news from home today, and I am half miserable and half joyful. I am a wretch for feeling so. All my people are in great grief. My brother and his two sons are dead. I am a rich man. My mother writes beseeching me to return at once. I want to read you what she says. I want to show you the lawyer's letter. You will then see that there is no choice left us. It is necessary that I should leave Leckhart's land, that you should become mine at once. Your father's consent is nothing. What sane man could consider his objection to me reasonable? You must come to England with me. Your brother, dead, said Honoria vaguely. You are going to England? She was silent for a moment, looking at him as though she barely followed the drift of his words, yet comprehending that their relations towards each other had changed. Hush, she whispered, suddenly clutching his arm. Do you not hear a noise? There is a man listening behind the bamboos. I am certain of it. I heard a footstep. Oh, let us go away from here. And, indeed, there was a sound of retreating feet crushing the dry bamboo leaves that strewed the ground. My love, said Barrington, this is the most retired part of the gardens, but we cannot guard against intrusion. It would be fatal if you were recognized, and you are unveiled. Honoria trembled violently, nevertheless spoke with some of her old imperious air. It is not because I am ashamed, she said, but that I am afraid. And afraid of what? I don't know. Of you? Go on. I don't understand what you were saying. Tell me again. Your brother is dead, and you are going away. What do you wish me to do? How can I talk to you here? asked Barrington. Would you have our confidences reported all over Leckhart's town tomorrow? You must come with me to my rooms. I have lodgings in a quiet part of Leckhart's town. You will go and return unperceived. And there we can speak of our future. 
we can decide our plans without fear of being seen or overheard. Everything is changed with me. You must read Burnley's letter. You must hear what my mother says to me. You see that it is a most important matter. Your future and mine depend upon your decision. Honoria, you must do as I bid you. When you have heard everything, you may weigh all the considerations calmly, but you owe me obedience now. Go with you to your rooms? I could not. What would people think or say? No, no. Can you not write to me? Oh, I am certain that I heard footsteps again. Let me go back. I shall be able to think tomorrow. Tonight I am frightened, unnerved. Tomorrow will be too late, said Barrington. Come, I only ask you for an hour. I will bring you back to this spot. It is not like you to be deterred from doing what is desirable, nay, necessary, by a mere conventional scruple. There would be no impropriety in your going to my lodgings if Mrs. Ferris were with you. Can you not trust me to take care of you? Yes, but I am alone. How can I go with you to a strange place? At this hour it is impossible. You did not hesitate to meet me here, he urged. Why should you object to spending an hour with me in my temporary home, where you will be safe as in your own? Honoria, you are above these petty considerations. There is a cab waiting at the south gate. I tell you that I must speak to you alone. Do you not see that this news has changed my whole life, that you must decide at once whether you will be my wife or not? He drew her on for a few steps while she weakly resisted his entreaties. His longing impelled him almost beyond the bounds of self-control. He was conscious only of the overmastering desire to have her to himself. Those soft shadows which the moon threw upon her cheek and brow mocked and bewitched his excited fancy. And she too seemed borne along upon the tide of his passion. "'I am obliged to do what you bid me,' said Honoria submissively. "'You are my master, and I cannot resist. I must obey you. I know that my better nature shrinks from you, and yet I cling to you. Hardress, why should I not trust you? Why should I fear you?' The appeal in her tone stifled for a moment the vague impulses in Barrington's breast, which had as yet hardly shaped themselves into a definite design. "'Come,' he said, "'have I not said that I have ever been loyal to the woman who trusted me?' He folded her mantle more closely round her, playfully chided her for her inattention to her disguise, and placed her hand upon his arm in a calm, protecting manner, which, contrasted with his former excitement, gave her new confidence and soothed her agitation. Thus they walked down beneath the bunya trees to the south gate of the gardens, where a closed carriage was awaiting them. Honoria shrank back again with involuntary repugnance to the thought that she was the victim of a deliberate scheme of coercion. "'You had planned that I should come,' she exclaimed. "'A lover who would win his cause must be prepared at all points,' said Barrington lightly. I trusted in your good sense and in my persuasions to overcome your scruples. I knew that our conversation was too important to bear the risk of interruption. The nights are very cold, dearest, and I have some regard for your health and comfort. She allowed him to help her into the carriage and shivered as she cowered into the farthest corner. Barrington gave an order to the driver and they were whirled along past King Street, with its many lights and buzz of traffic, into a darker region where the carriage paused before one of a row of houses facing the river. 
Barrington descended, spoke to the coachman, then with a latch-key opened the door to admit Honoria, who hurriedly alighted and fancying that she perceived two dark figures standing in the shadow of a neighbouring building, clung to hardress for protection and concealment. She found herself in a dim passage, lighted by a lamp suspended from the ceiling, and with closed doors upon one side. Once within, she breathed more freely. Barrington led Honoria upstairs into a sitting-room, comfortably furnished, and with a bright fire burning upon the hearth. "'You see that you are perfectly safe and infinitely warmer here than beneath the bamboos,' he said lightly. "'My landlady is sleeping the slumber of the just below stairs, and you will depart as quietly as you have entered. Let me draw your chair closer to the fire, and relieve you of your cloak. Your fingers are numbed with cold.' His air of commonplace solicitude, the warmth and absence of melodramatic effect in his language, or in their surroundings, dispelled Honoria's vague fears, and made her almost ashamed of her former weakness. There was, too, a certain piquancy in the situation which appealed to her love of adventure, and she looked about her with interest and animation. "'Forgive the disorder of my bachelor apartments,' said Barrington, removing a pipe from the table at her elbow. "'This is a view of Castle Barrington.' and this is a likeness of my mother, he added, seeing that her eyes wandered towards the photographs upon the mantel-shelf. Honoria examined the portrait attentively. How beautiful she is! How noble! Your mother! And I! Oh, if I could have had such a mother as this! Hardress, it is best indeed that we should part. Your people are not as my people, and my life has not fitted me for yours. He was silent. At that moment he dared not reply. She gazed thoughtfully into the fire, her face bent forward, her hands supporting her chin. He stood opposite, watching her. Presently she turned and met his eyes. You look strange, troubled. It is thoughtless of me to forget that you have had bad news today. You are sorry for your brother's death. You said that you had a great deal to tell me. Say it now. I am not as nervous as I was. I will try to think calmly, and then I will decide. Tell me all that has happened. What do you wish me to do? With forced composure, Barrington began his tale, and related at length the tidings he had received that afternoon. He did not affect any great grief at the death of his brother, between whom and himself there had never been much sympathy. But the tone of genuine regret in which he spoke of his nephews and of his widowed sister-in-law touched Honoria's feelings, and convinced her of his sincerity. He talked of his mother and of her longing for his return. He read her the lawyer's letter and a part of that from Lady Alice Barrington. Then his voice faltered, and in eager tones he painted the life they would lead in England, Italy, wherever it should please her to dwell. He poured forth assurances of his unfailing love and vague protestations, the drift of which she did not at once comprehend. He passionately besought her to leave Leckhart's land with him upon the morrow. End of chapter 35 Read by Celine Major